0: Welcome to Capital Class. I'm Adam Geary. We founded Capital Class to share candid conversations with market-leading businesses, while humanizing the journey of constructing an enterprise. The tutor or guide to advance someone's knowledge of a specific content area, dates back to ancient Greece. While evolving incrementally over time, the tutoring business founded on local talent, providing resources to local students, has largely remained unchanged. For most of us, you found a tutor the same way you found lessons for your recorder, a flyer with tear-off strips. Up until COVID, the industry was dominated by a few legacy players and local students offering their knowledge. Yet in today's market, tutoring has exploded into a space of both privately held and publicly traded organizations. Yet in 2017, when tutoring was a nice-to-have, the local school or university. Today's guests recognize the need for an integrated tutoring model for the higher education industry. This idea to enterprise would eventually become NAC. To share this story, we are joined by Samir Qureshi, CEO and co-founder of NAC. Samir's journey as a struggling student, newly immigrated to America, to founder and entrepreneur is both inspiring and insightful. We explore the story of growing an enterprise, an industry sector, and a leader in today's episode of Capital Class. We hope you enjoy. Samir, welcome to Capital Class.
1: Thanks, Adam. Appreciate you having me on.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Let me uh, say this. My first interaction with like the tutoring space, right? this is way back, was a flyer with little tear-offs at the bottom, right? I'd say like, like someone's phone number, uh, whatever they actually provided tutoring in and a name, right? And that was like, that was the industry. And it's incredible to see how much it has evolved to where it is today. Someone like you who builds an entire business around the space, it, it's really come 360.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, technology is a new and better way of doing something, a new and improved way of doing something. And so um, I think, you know, the world's come a long way since the, the paper flyers, you still see them now. And, um, you know, in many ways, that's, that's sort of the world in which we're playing in. And so, yeah, it's, um, things are continually changing and, and innovation will continually kind of drive our society forward. And we're excited to be kind of building in the world of tutoring.
0: That's like- Be a little more granular here, right? Before COVID, the tutoring sectors, as we see it, and love your perspective, were Sylvans, right? Maybe if you were going and getting a professional degree, a Princeton. And then it was a bunch of local resources providing local tutoring to students. And now, as I've described your business, you are in some ways like the Airbnb. Right, you're, you're pairing needs with assets all over an institution. And you know, obviously, that's changing the resources that people can get their hands on. But clearly, it's become a market that even most recently, a company like Varsity Tutors, they go public. Right? I mean, it's, it's an entirely different space. Absolutely. Yeah, it's,
1: it's changed quite a bit. And our, our model is actually university-specific so to kind of think a little bit more about what that looks like you know every college campus for the most part operates a tutoring center today and it's sort of a physical brick and mortar obviously now with covid and and sort of the adaptations campuses have made there's online you know components of it but it's really sort of this model where they staff tutors students are available uh to help their peers those tutors are peer tutors i should say and you know, then students that need support can come in or log on virtually and connect with those tutors. The university actually subsidizes the cost for those tutors for free, making it free for others. And really, you know, what we're doing is, is building an extension on top of that. And so we're really building sort of an ability for campuses to scale more tutoring in a peer-to-peer manner um, without sort of taking on the overhead administrative lift that they, they would by sort of scaling this in-house. Um, and so what I mean by that is we partner with campuses you know campuses like Fordham University, University of Florida, Rutgers, et cetera. And they essentially will pay us to stand up a marketplace of tutors on their campus. We work very closely with that institution to vet those tutors, ensure that they meet the qualifications the institution is setting. Um, those tutors opt in an early rate that's fully subsidized by the institution. And then students that need support can now book those tutors for free using our platform. So we've essentially taken the the world of private tutoring Honor around a college campus and created a platform in which the institution has a hand in it. They can sort of scale it up and be able to increase access and equity of these services without ever asking a student to pay for it. What that's ultimately doing is sort of hitting on their bottom line, be it retention, graduation rates. Uh, some of the numbers that right now are, are, been, are being sort of threatened for institutions as students are you know, not persisting at the same rates they used to or are just sort of holding back on enrolling in the first place. The institutions are thinking a lot around retention. Uh, and so that's really where that comes in.
0: So what drives an institution? I mean, they make a decision, obviously, to have a tutoring center. I think that's a functionality that predates, you know, you and I going to college, but to make that shift, right? I mean, what's what's the common thread from an institution's state?
1: Yeah. So it's not necessarily shifting away from that. It's sort of opening up another option or resource, right? So we've we've almost never had a campus say, we're gonna implement NAC and then throw away our tutoring center take it away or remove it. The idea here is sort of on average, we're seeing campuses are only reaching about 20 or 30% of students with existing tutoring. And if they bring in another option like NAC, what they're able to do is sort of flexibly add a support mechanism that's serving those students who had historically not been using services due to accessibility constraints. Maybe they needed help at 9 p.m. the tutoring center is only open till five. Sure. Um, you know, maybe they need help in an upper division course, the tutoring center is only covering sort of lower division courses. So NAC sort of slots in as this this provider that's creating jobs for students on campus in a way that's mission aligned with the institution. And then also, you know, of course giving away free support to students who need it the most. These are oftentimes first generation, you know, Pell eligible low-income students um, minority, uh, minor, minoritized students, you know, students that have just been in, in varying socioeconomic, uh, you know, areas where they've historically not persisted at the same rates. And so, you know, oftentimes what it takes is an institution understanding that, you know, there are students that are being unserved, underserved, um, and are being missed. And what can we be doing to better serve those students? And that's really where NAC enters the picture. Do
0: you find that in the new environment, right? And I, and I say that as in tutoring pre-COVID, right? The expectations have changed in the current landscape of tutoring, right? And this this vernacular of high dosage, this has become prevalent in almost every conversation we have about tutoring. It's called into question some of the efficacy of the tutoring industry, right? The actual value of a tutor. And then how scalable is that? What are you seeing in the market?
1: Yeah. So a lot of the discussion around high dosage tutoring, from my understanding, has been at the K-12 level. Um, And that's because, you know, a lot of the the government funding has flowed in that direction around, you know, ESSER funding, ARPA, you know, uh, COVID relief funds, essentially to really sort of make up for this learning loss, the COVID slide that a lot of people are calling, which is that students have been learning online and had been forced to learn in that manner over the period of the pandemic. Uh, And still some instances are still learning online, um, which obviously is very hard to sort of gauge the engagement, the efficacy, uh, and, and ensure that students are learning at the same rates as they would in person. And so tutoring has sort of entered this picture as, you know. Some may claim it's sort of a silver bullet. I think it, you know it's not necessarily that silver bullet. You need to still have the the in person engagement and the true support of a faculty or instructor. Um, but really, what this is entering the picture for is this idea that can tutors kind of be the the savior to this learning loss issue, and can it be done in a way that studies are now showing um, you know are are most efficacious, and so. High dosage typically means, you know, you're in a structured setting and you're doing this oftentimes in the middle of the school day with, you know, multiple uh, interactions in that week. And so that could be in a small group, that could be in a one-on-one setting. Um, In the college world, I would say high dosage tutoring is not uh, sort of as much in the picture just because they've kind of been running things in a certain way. You also have students that are obviously older and, and may have the ability to sort of seek out resources themselves whereas parents are in the picture are obviously wanting to make sure their kids are succeeding uh, and there's just more i think at risk for students not having that learning early on versus later in college when again most of your foundational um, subjects and, and knowledge should, should somewhat be there um, but high dosage is something we continue to hear about um, you know NAC does not consider itself a high dosage tutoring provider just because one we play in the college space and two It's truly a student's, you know, um, opt in resource that they're choosing to use, not necessarily set up in a structured manner every single week or, you know, in that in that circumstance. So um, we have had some campuses say, look, we want to sort of marry NAC into a model that is more structured. And we'd like to see this be something that happens on a weekly or biweekly basis to some of them even saying we may want to integrate this within the curriculum. Uh, sort of give students extra credit, kind of incentivize, give them a carrot to raise their hand and say, I need help, which obviously with a good tutor and a good mechanism to have that support, um, it can really help drive those persistence and completion rates up, which is ultimately, again, the, the mission of the institution is how do we get students in? How do we help them persist? And then how do we give them great paying jobs as they graduate?
0: Are you seeing that the student population that works with NAC is persisting? At, at, a higher rate than let's just say to the general population.
1: Yeah. So in the studies that, that institutions have done and that we've been able to sort of observe, yes. Um, now obviously there's a lot of variables there, right? Of course. Uh, I think if a student also had been using another website or had been kind of. Brushing up themselves. I mean, there's so many different things that are hard to control for. And so that's why it's hard to, um, to, to always 100% say yes, but I think everyone knows it's sort of like going to a, uh, a gym and going to a trainer, right? if you're going to put in the time and you're sort of, you know, diligently making effort to do better and and to focus on your form and to focus on your repetitions, I'm sure you're going to see gains. Um, but at the same time, you could also have a poor diet, um, which may actually be detracting from that, that positive progress. And so it's very hard to control, but I think it's well known that, you know, be it two Sigma and be it other studies that have come out across K 12 that Tutoring does work if people are sort of doing it in the right way with the right intentions and are being supported with the right interventions, ultimately. And so what we're trying to do is really structure, not just our technology, but the practices around tutoring that we we really onboard the tutors on and and sort of um, share with them, it it should ideally continue to lead to better results. And the institution has a big hand in that. Um, They can have faculty help get involved in determining who gets to be a tutor. You know, there's training they can administer. There's things like that, which really help ensure the efficacy stays strong. Uh, and, and as much as we can, that's a big piece of what we're focused on beyond the accessibility. We don't want to just reach students, we want to engage them in a way that's working and we want to help them retain in a way that's aligned with the institution.
0: I guess why I find this so fascinating is that I started early days of my career working at an institution. And, or, or let's even go back beyond that, when you and I attended college. It was completely understandable that there's just some people that don't make it. Right. And that was just people that do, people that don't. The data was there, right? You knew the freshman cohort. They even had go back to the 70s. They knew the percentage of kids that would persist after the first 12 weeks. Right. And that data is available. And I think universities and colleges for a long time wasn't really their problem. Right. You went. They had all the they had all the kind of goods you might need at it right. The books are there, libraries are there, teachers are there. They just provided like like the commercial uh, real estate, right? They provide the space and maybe the things you need to do in that space, but it was on you to utilize it. And if kids didn't, students didn't, uh, not their problem. And then kind of cut to where we are today. Institutions, I think, have had to be very, very intentional about keeping those students and persisting those students, not only for for funding formula purposes, but I think to validate the need of higher ed. I think your your offering fits into this quite interestingly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we I mean. I was student body president of a college, and and I sat in on the board of trustees meetings and understood this idea of persistence and completion going down and the issue of not being able to even hit enrollment numbers. And these are very real issues, and that was 10, 12 years ago. Um, these issues are more exacerbated today. Um, you hear about the enrollment decline, right? There's just not as many students that are choosing to go to college that are open to that idea because, you know, costs have gone this way and ROI has kind of stayed flat or has held below that level. And then you look at our earnings potential post-grad, the ROI is being questioned pretty, pretty heavily, not just by students, but by, you know, government administrators, by leadership, um, around what can we do to sort of help empower students to see the value of what they're doing, give them the tools to be successful so that it isn't this sort of sink or swim mentality. Um, there's also, you know, inclusive excellence imperatives where schools now want to be able to pride themselves on being an MSI or an HSI, minority serving institution, Hispanic serving institution, where they want to be able to say these students are uh, are welcome here and they're able to find the sense of belonging and ultimately are able to persist because that's the mission of the institution. And so I think as, as everything is, the spotlight's kind of come back on what is the mission of the university, right? It's the core of it is teaching and learning. and the, the, the bare bones teaching and learning of we've got class, you can come in if you want, um, you know, is not necessarily uh, always going to work for every student, be it maybe they have other challenges at home, maybe they're an adult learner, you know, maybe they have this this uh, imposter syndrome of, of not wanting to be seen or not feeling like they actually belong. These are very real things that aren't just in education, but it's in the workforce, too. You hear about it in companies, too, right, in, in the way that people want to elevate and be able to grow within an organization. They're very real problems to humanity. And I think education should provide sort of this launch pad and this, this breeding ground for those students to gain the, the confidence academically, to gain the social skills as they're meeting with their peers, uh, and ultimately to build a network to help them not just do well in school, but say, Hey, you know, I'm going to lean on these people post-grad. Maybe we'll have opportunities to build businesses together. That's how I met my co-founders. Uh, or maybe it's an opportunity to sort of find a job post-grad just As I'd like to, and 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 maintain that network that is going to be a a peer circle. I think all of those pieces—the academic side, the social side, the career side—of why students go to school is now coming back full circle. And folks are saying, "Look, the sink or swim thing doesn't work um, because ultimately the the students are the customers. And if they stop coming or they stop believing and stop paying, ultimately it it shakes up the university and and forces them to think differently. And I think that's what we're seeing right now.
0: Do you find yourself having to? Like almost do cultural shift when you go meet with institutions. Like this is, you're describing a customer centric model in a business that was founded in the 1800s, William Mary even earlier, right? But just the more recent. Let's talk about you know the A and M's of the world, late turn early 1900s, right? You start to pick up agricultural based institutions. It's always been a sink or swim model, right? It's always been uh, you pay for it. And then you use it or you don't. And you're talking about a model really gained around, that's almost much more entrepreneurial, right? It's what do your customers need? How do you help your customers succeed? How do you provide customer value?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I can't tell you how many times we hear higher ed is allergic to the word business or customer. Um, they're not technically a business, right? They're they're not they're not for profits for the most part, and they are very mission centric. But I would say they operate um, oftentimes from a place of you know rigidity and deep history, and sometimes that's incredible, right? That brings this richness of a of a purest educational experience. But times have changed. Times are continuing to change at a faster rate. Workforce needs are changing the types of students that are entering classes today are changing. Um, again, you're oftentimes seeing parents in classes now at at universities, you're seeing universities have huge extension schools and continuing ed programs and online divisions that are welcoming, you know, what they call non-traditional or post-traditional students. And so to do the same thing from a time where a lot of those students back in the day were your standard 18 to 24 year olds and expect different results is just not going to happen. And so I think, Especially as workforce gets louder and oftentimes even more strengthened to upskill uh, new grads, it starts to beg the question of Do I even need to go to college? And you know, I have many friends that left school uh, and that are you know working in tech or or have started their own businesses that said, I'm really glad I left because I didn't really feel like it would have done anything for me except cripple me with debt. And that's a scary thing to hear when you know your mission is to help sort of. Push out the next generation of not necessarily just scholars, but people that are going to be able to contribute to society. And I think that is that's the piece right now, where if there is a connection to helping school, uh, students develop skills that aren't just important in passing a class, but are important in life after college: resilience, problem solving, critical thinking, teamwork, collaboration. You know, digital literacy. These are things that are essential for you to be successful. Um, you know being successful in four years in that environment is great, but what is that really doing for you in life after college? And I think, again, there's more of that push um, from the government, from industry. And I am seeing, you know, as we're talking to institutions that they are sort of opening their eyes to this pretty quickly, Um, but it is a huge cultural shift because if you think about oftentimes who's sort of the lifeblood of the campus besides students, it's faculty, right? And so there is a mindset shift there that has to take place of change management in terms of, listen, you know, we have to think differently. And the question is, are they going to be able to do it and are they going to be able to do it in time and where students will realize that value and say, okay, this is still worthwhile. You're always going to have the students that are going to go to college no matter what, because they want that experience. You're also going to have all those students that just never go to college because they want to go to trades or they just don't feel like they need that. It's the middle ground students who are sort of determining, even the parents are saying, Hey, I'm not sure if, if you know, we should help you uh, pay for a $20,000 a year experience if it's not going to really get you out out on the other side ahead. And so that's kind of the critical mass in the middle there that I think higher ed is really trying to focus on right now. And that oftentimes means pulling people in from the fringes who haven't considered going to college. So you'll see a lot of schools have bridge programs now to sort of bring in students in in non-traditional manners. And part of it's an enrollment strategy. Part of it is, is what I would argue is part of their mission as well
0: powerful. I mean, look, if, if it works, right. I mean, if there's, if there's a continued focus on, and let me just back up for a second there, there was a shift in time where the value of going to an institution was growing more and more and more just for the exit value, right? Like to get the $200 to get, go past, go, you had to go around the board one time, which is four years of college, right? That was the way. And then now, you know, there, there was another function, which was the value of what you're talking about. The whole student That's a term, you know, that's way back in the books and that development of that student. And Part of that was social and emotional before that became what it is today, where it's gotten its own uh, prescriptions of what it is and isn't, but that development of the student, it's almost like it's, it's actually going back to its roots. It's what I'm hearing from you. Right, the the development of that person, not just intellectually, but as a person.
1: Yeah, and and sometimes that's hard for people to grasp if it doesn't equate to dollars and cents. But I'll say, as an employer, we've hired folks who are really good technically, and and I don't just mean um, uh, I don't just mean like on the computer. I mean like technical parts of their job, huh. uh, but are not really great at working with people, are not really great at communication, are not really great at you know keeping a positive attitude and being resilient. And those aren't things you can teach out of a book, but those are things that I would argue can be solidified and and formed in a peer environment with your in, in your college on your college campus. And so, you know, I, I do really believe and hope that college campuses don't disappear. I don't believe they will. Um, but I do think the experience students are going to have on those campuses may be a little different. And I think you're starting to see a lot of campuses ramp up mental health services, ramp up mentorship services, things that sort of develop that social emotional side, which again, some people claim is touchy feely, and it doesn't really do much for students, but ultimately I can tell you as an employer, those value those skills are really important because you can, we can teach you how to code. We can teach you how to, you know, write an email to, uh, as a salesperson, but if you don't understand sort of the EQ side of things and have emotional intelligence, those are really, really difficult things to teach. And there's a critical time I would say from call it high school through college where those skills are being formed. uh, and, and that happens in a very natural, authentic, organic environment with students around you. Um, but I also believe that that needs to come loudly from employers so that universities aren't just saying, Hey, we want to provide all these nice services. They, They can tie that value back to what employers care about. There's a lot that's happening, um, you know, from uh, different initiatives, initiatives like ETS had one called Skills for the New Economy, where they're trying to sort of make these connections between what employers and workforce cares about and what the curriculum should be teaching to really create direct links and encourage students that there is value in higher education. I really believe there is. I just think higher ed is at a critical moment to be able to essentially make changes faster and not be in their own way as it relates to some of the challenges around, you know, change management, let's say, or just mentality shifts. I think it really is putting the student first and saying they are our payer and we should be serving them to the extent that we believe it fits our mission of teaching and learning and and helping students be successful in life after
0: college. I couldn't agree more. You know, you use a word uh, resiliency and it strikes me from many of the interviews we've done on this show and then in even my own reflections, you know, that's a common term amongst entrepreneurs, right? That ability uh, to look out into the vast ocean, right, and see land, right, even though you don't see land, but you know it's there, right. And and I'd, I'd like to almost go back just for a moment, right? We the journey from idea to enterprise is kind of a founding principle of the biz- of this uh, show, and. You leave a job, right? Full-time job at a very recognizable company in America, and you have an idea to start a business that would disrupt or evolve an industry that has largely been relatively static for a long period of time. Take us back to that. like Take us to that moment.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, I was, uh, 22 at the time. And I think part of this was, you know, sort of like ignorance is bliss. I was naive. I didn't know (laughs) the, the, uh, the challenges, but I think I was up for the challenge as much as I could imagine that I I would be able to kind of be resilient and fight uh, for what I believe in. And, and I think, um, There were a lot of things happening in the world around technology. You mentioned Airbnb, Airbnb, Uber, you know, Lyft, uh, DoorDash, all these companies were just exploding. Uh, this was early 2014, going into 2015, you know, these companies were house becoming household names, but they were for many, they were still kind of crazy concepts. Like this idea that I'll get in a car with a stranger, um, or I'll stay at someone's house who I don't know. And oftentimes these industries were gray area, they weren't regulated, right? And then you see regulation come down later. But what they were really trying to do is effectively connect supply and demand, latent supply, latent demand, and activate sort of the sharing economy concept, which is that you've got sort of two sides of a marketplace and there's been deep institutions that have been preventing them from connecting, be it the taxi cab industry, hotel industry, et cetera. Uh, and they've become so bloated that it makes it very difficult for the consumer to have any, um, true voice around this is actually what I want. Whereas when you decentralize that and you remove that and you essentially give the power back to people, what it's allowing for is, you know, the ability, not not just reduction in cost necessarily, but scale, the ability to scale up a network of housing or drivers in a certain area. I mean, you saw during, I don't know if you, you heard about this, but during the Ukraine, um, sort of situation, which is naturally still going on, unfortunately, Um, Airbnb was able to sort of create this network of homes uh, for refugees to go to. And, you know, what that they're able to respond to, the power of consumers and people is really powerful and special. And and I started to think about education being this largely institutionalized system that has good intentions. Right. Um, And is very, very important to society, just as transportation and housing are. But it was it was done in such a, you know, a slow moving way. And oftentimes the net promoter score, the engagement, the excitement students had around education is so low. Uh, and naturally the the reach that institutions are able to have has been low. Um, and tutoring is something that's kind of followed me around my whole life. I struggled a lot when I was a kid. Um, you know, I grew up here in the Tampa Bay area and, uh, I, I came here from the middle East when I was a kid and, um, at a very young age, I was really challenged, uh, to meet, you know, sort of expectations in elementary and middle school. Um, I ultimately did pretty well later on, thanks to being immersed in a lot of tutoring, sitting down one-on-one with my mom on hammering math and science and writing and reading, and just making sure I had that, that attention. And I would, I would say single-handedly. That's one of the most, that's probably one of the biggest reasons I was able to even be here today is to have that, that individualized support. And, um, I remember being a tutor later on. I volunteered in high school as part of my scholarship, uh, for college and I remember just kind of watching kids and and students kind of get to that point of really getting something and really feeling good about that. And I I remember that being such a priceless moment. Um, And I didn't think I would end up in ed tech and ended up going off to um, uh, University of Florida. I earned my associate's degree from St. Petersburg College while I was in high school. That's where I was student body president. Um, At the time, Provost uh, J. Williams, who's now the president there, uh, I worked very closely with her to understand the initiatives and how we could help progress the institution. Going off to University of Florida, um, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I was a pre-law student and <laughs> um, got got involved with a lot of those clubs and such, but I always had this excitement around entrepreneurship. I had a couple of businesses in college and paid my way through school with some of those things and um, always found ways to kind of build something, but never really considered it a true um, job or career. I think as an immigrant, it's kind of Get a job, you know, have a good sort of stable income, 401k benefits, etc. Have family, retire. Like that was kind of the path. And um, when I got into to Gartner, uh, incredible company. I still have many friends that work there. Um, I was just, I kept thinking about the sharing economy, and I thought how exciting this could be to be involved with. And I was um, sort of speaking to C level executives all the time as part of my job, and I would just get excited talking to them. And then I'd remember I was still in a, in a cubicle and and working on something where I wanted to actually be out there building something. And so I, I ultimately laughed after thinking about these issues in education and wanting to build something that I felt like would really help students, but institutions ultimately do better, uh, in accordance with their mission. And so, you know, we launched NAC in 2016, we won the university of Florida's business plan competition, which was the first sort of springboard into validating a concept. Uh, and then we went on to raise millions in venture capital. Um, some funds out west backed us, some groups locally here backed us. Uh, and so that's kind of what's allowed us to continue to grow and, and be able to, to spread our word and mission.
0: It is a powerful story, but I think it's founded in an experience, right? Which is your mother is your tutor. We share that story. I, I too was a struggling learner. And uh, in my case, you know, the prescription was less, right? It was like, well, expect less, right? You'll do different things. Uh, you'll do blue collar jobs. That was one of the things, right? I was like, that, that's where you'll go. And it was for me, you know, the, the reading and having someone who would spend that dedicated time for me in the early days. That led me as a passion into education. So I, I one hundred percent, uh, ashr- prescribe the direction I've had, which was, you know, from, I guess in some ways it was a tutor, right? She just also was my mother.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think, um, you know, the one thing I'll say about no matter what's going on in the world and and how we might feel about our political climate, uh, obviously there are huge challenges and issues that are in front of us that we have yet to solve after seeing things time and time again. Um, I still believe if you work hard here, you can accomplish anything. And I think, you know, despite struggling academically, um, I was able to land a job and I was able to get to a place where I was able to put my head down and work hard and and do well at a corporate gig, even though I wasn't there for long. Um, And even leaving, leaving that to start NAC, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't have any like finance or true business background or anything like that. It was all about hustle and putting my head down and working and, and finding the right team members to really support me in areas where I wasn't able to, to fill in. Um, and that's what's allowed us to be 20 plus people now. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it really is an opportunity. I really believe entrepreneurship can be the pathway to unlock a lot of um, real potential for folks, whether or not they do well academically or not. Uh, and so I've been really interested in groups like junior achievement locally here in Tampa Bay, um, doing really great work to spread the word of, of entrepreneurship to, to as many young people as possible. And so, yeah, it's, it's been, um, you know, from, from struggling to becoming a tutor to now kind of being in, in, in the seat of an entrepreneur, it's, it's just something that I really encourage folks to, to consider as a path as well.
0: When we met, which I can't believe was in August of 2019 right, in a small office off Kennedy, at that time, your your business as I remember it, and you would know better, was a handful of institutions, some in the state of Florida, and growing, right? I think we were only now, in the state of Florida, yeah. Wh- what'd you say?
1: I think we were like only in the state of Florida at that point.
0: And now you're where? Uh,
1: I want to say 17 states uh and at the time when we met i think our team was maybe you know eight or nine people um we're north of 20 now by the end of the year we'll probably be approaching 40. um and you know the goal is to to really make NAC be the platform that every college student has access to um by way of partnerships with institutions in a way that's mission aligned and, and incentive aligned ultimately but yeah, our goal is to, you know, to really be that go-to solution for college students, uh, to get help, to give help, uh, and to ultimately help them succeed in, in not just in college, but in life after
0: college. That I appreciate that. Right. And that's, that's kind of the direction you're heading now, but going back for a moment, the business maturity, right. From where you were to where you are, that's cumbersome, right. To take investment to moving from founder. Co-founder, CEO, where everyone's kind of doing everything. To, hey, some people do some things and other people do other things. Like that's a process. That pair that with expanding staff, and then time. Right, you've been at this now for six years. When you when you hit those moments, right? That that every entrepreneur hits. Like what are some of the things that you're using and you, like what are some of the ways that you're driving through what what are some of the the gears that you shift into as a leader to drive the organization
1: yeah um you know we hit those moments a lot sometimes it's multiple times a day um yeah. some of those moments earlier today to be honest and i think it's um it's remembering like at least for me the the end user impact and so you know, um being able to read reviews of how students feel after their tutoring sessions or the learning outcomes they're they're sort of self self-reporting um from being able to work with students, work with a tutor on our platform, those are stories that are very hard to ignore because they're human stories. And so the one thing I love about our business is, you know, we're um we're not necessarily building some sort of automation that that only gets used by you know, some, some person that sits in a certain department, we're building something that on one side gives someone economic opportunity to, to, to really be a tutor and to, to lend a hand to others and and to earn an income, like I said, from an economic standpoint, but on the flip side, we're giving students a pathway to be able to connect with someone who's been in their shoes before and to ultimately succeed. And so at any given point, if we pull back the curtain and look at some of the data, we're able to kind of see really two incredible experiences that are forged on our product, that uh, forged through our product, I should say, and these connections that are made. We hear stories of students saying, you know, I became really good friends with my tutor now, and it's like this really great experience and, and new peer connection on campus. Or, you know, I wouldn't have walked across the stage had I not had a tutor on NAC or wouldn't be able to pay for, you know, rent or my other expenses in college if it hadn't been for NAC. And so, you know, we've had students that, we're on the brink of homelessness that are are using that to be able to pay their bills and things like that. those are those are stories that even on hard days, it reminds you of what you're working towards and who you're working for. Uh, and ultimately, that's that's students for us. as much as the university is our customer, the students are the users. And you know, I think that's ultimately why institutions are in the business that they are, which is they love to see students succeed. And so it's ultimately about student success and the more we can sort of keep that top of mind, Remember the work that we do. You know, oftentimes that makes the hard days easier.
0: I, I find, you know, I, you you've gone back to this a couple of times of that kind of mission, and obviously founded right in a very personal story, right? Why why you're here? A lot of entrepreneurs, and I've been guilty of this. We our identity becomes almost like synonymous with our business, right? And in the early days, as I remember you, your days, your nights, your weekends was a knack. And that sometimes makes it hard to turn off, unplug. What, what is it that people don't see that you use as a way to recharge?
1: Yeah. Um, I love playing music as, as you might, as you might sort of, uh, surmise here and, um, that's something I I find is somewhat of an escape uh, and a creative outlet to be able to kind of unplug uh, and recharge. You know, I think um, early on, and I still have some of these moments where it's like as much as as much time as I'd like to take off, I almost get more anxious if I take time off because then I feel like I'm behind and it's this evil sort of mental cycle, um, you know, of like hustle culture that I think can be dangerous. Um, because everyone needs rest, and um, it's hard to get off the treadmill when, you know, sometimes you're hitting record numbers and you feel really good about it, or when you're not hitting numbers and you're behind, it almost feels like the best thing to do is just run harder and faster. Um, but that's ultimately, as we know, the, the the cause of burnout for a lot of folks, and um, that is the dark side of entrepreneurship. You know, there's um, there have been many moments, whether it's myself or my co-founders, we go through hard times and. Um, a lot of that comes from sort of marrying our identity with what we do work-wise, but when the work is so, um, believed to be meaningful in the world, um, it can be hard to separate that. And so for me, music's been a great outlet and, um, you know, getting outdoors and fresh air as much as possible. Uh, lucky we live in Florida, uh, summers are rough, but otherwise it's, it's still good to be here. And, um, you know, so those are, those are things I like to do. And, um, I have a dog, so I enjoy spending time with her as well. Um, but music, music has been a big part of my life since I was a kid. Honestly, since I moved here, I've been playing music, uh, you know, starting down in elementary school. So, uh, just remembering those things that kind of give you, you know, peace, joy, happiness, uh, those are things I try to keep in my life as much as possible.
0: Powerful, uh, I, I, Samir, uh, you know, my experience as a CEO, the role that you serve, right? That title's attractive, right? I think it's like the most frequently used on LinkedIn, right? CEO, of a, you could be a CEO of anything. You be CEO of your own uh, company with your own name as you're the only employee, right? But to truly have that role requires an incredible amount of self-evaluation, right? Reflection. And myself, I find this frequent. You know The things that I'm, my thoughts will drive the direction and the decision-making which impacts our business. You know, when you think about your role as a CEO, what are some of the things that you're focusing on? Not from a business stance, right? Because th- there's an answer for that, right? And you clearly have it, but from a personal stance.
1: Um, can you repeat that question one more time?
0: It's more to the sense of, for me as a as r c u the thing that I check myself on is overconfidence right as you succeed, it becomes increasingly easier because the whole world will tell you everything you do is right, right your title denotes success, whatever you know qualitative things people believe is success uh but if you let that begin to drive your decision-making, right, you can, you can drive your business to a very bad, bad place. And so I'm always interested with other CEOs, if we're gonna, what are you managing for in yourself? What are you looking for? What are you, what are you growing personally?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think w- one of the things, um, you know, it's sort of the season right now for us to do it is performance reviews. And I oftentimes ask, Um, you know, those that report to me to kind of hold me accountable and to, to read feedback directly from them, because ultimately, um, if they're unhappy or they feel like the culture is slipping or it's just not an enjoyable place to work, um, then any, any vision I personally have or anything I want to carry out just means nothing. Um, this is something that only works if we're all energized, excited, and feel, positive about what we're working on in the right direction and and we're all moving in the right direction. And so for me, it's, um, you know, I've actually had, I had this happen recently where, you know, one of our, our members on our leadership team said, Hey, you need to, you need to have more confidence in yourself. And, you know, I see you kind of doubting yourself at times and mm. it's human. Uh, I think. Especially when you're younger, at least from what I've read and friends I've talked to that are my age that are building companies to, you know, pitch school administrators, university administrators all day that are, that could be the age of my grandparents at times and who are kind of, you know, skeptically looking at a product and, and in a healthy manner, poking holes to make sure it's the right solution for their students are sort of, you know, looking at this closely and and making sure that we've thought through things It kind of sometimes make you, makes you wonder if, you know, you're truly at their level, right. And it sort of begs this idea of imposter syndrome, which I think is, is not often talked about enough to, for younger founders and especially newer founders who don't have credentials that, you know, can carry in terms of going to Harvard business school or having an MBA and things like that. And sure I could go get those things, but I don't ultimately feel like that's going to set me apart. I think it is being able to be self-aware, being able to have the right team, the right attitude, the right mindset. Um, And so those are the things that I try to check myself on is what is my personal mindset? What am I feeling? What does my team immediately feel around me, and then ultimately, what do our customers think of our business and brand? And are we listening to them closely as well, right? And without those two stakeholders—your internal team and your customers—checking you, um, you know, it's dangerous to kind of feel as CEO that you know you're always doing a great job or that you should be happy because the numbers are generally moving in the direction. If the sentiment behind those things are not positive, I think it's a matter of time before things come come down. And um, so, those are the things I, I try and pay attention
0: to. I couldn't agree more. Samir, it's been an awesome interview. We end every show uh, with a couple of big predictions, right? Kind of, and, and I should say both uh, predictions, but also suggestions. So, I'm going to, these are just fast, kind of off the top of your head. As an entrepreneur, right? Uh, what trends are emerging that interest you? Like what's something that just piques your interest likely outside of your space?
1: Yeah. um, I've actually been, I've been thinking more about, about it within the space of education, but not in higher ed. I've been thinking more about um, early childhood education and just, you know, the the notion of entrepreneurship as a true career path for young people. Um, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think there's hopefully going to be a deep, um, embracement and excitement around this idea of being an entrepreneur at a younger age. And that might mean contrary to what's better potentially for our business, because we rely on college campuses and students that may mean less people go to college may mean more people start businesses or they flexibly go to college while they're building a business, let's say. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of, um, stuff out there right now around people questioning what should be taught in schools and how it should be taught. And I think you might see more, of an embracement, especially coupled with the future of work where, you know, homeschooling becomes more of a norm, the ability to sort of have self-directed learning, um, you know, with aids like tutors, guides, mentors, versus sort of a structured educational system. I think that may continue to to unfold and and be unbundled as many are saying, but I think that's going to happen over a long period of time because I think it's so intertwined and other things tied back to society or government legislation policy. Um, but ultimately, I do see education becoming more and more unbundled, starting as young as school, going up through college, where you may see more students be entrepreneurs and more shots on goal with people building innovative businesses is is what I would love to
0: see and where I hope and think the, business, the world is going. Definitely a capital class first. I completely agree. And most folks, early learning is like relegated, often over, you know listed as daycare, which it's not. And I think, you know, we may look back on this episode and say, you were right, but it'll take time to figure that out. We'll have to keep it in the archives. Sure. Favorite podcast that you're listening to that we should be listening to.
1: Um, it's fairly kind of, you know, uh, canonical to hear from an entrepreneur, but how I built this is just so good. (laughs) Um, You know, it's Guy Raz is just I mean, he's so talented and the people he brings on and the way he's able to draw things out of people and the storytelling NPR is just, they've mastered it. And um, you know, there's, I've never had a bad episode there. Um, That's one stuff you should know is another one I've been listening to more. Okay. Uh, And then I've been starting to get into all in podcasts, which I know is really big amongst entrepreneurs. Um, The episodes are a bit longer. Uh, And then of course, Tim Ferriss, the, uh, the classic sort of, so. um,
0: I, I have a love-hate with Tim Ferriss, but uh, that may be an episode we'll have to do one day on the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, Samir, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for creating an incredible company and for sharing an incredible story.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on and uh, hope to see you around town. Hub.
0: Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining today's class with Samir Qureshi, Samir's journey from struggling learner to industry leader is a foundational example of an entrepreneur learning and leading from personal experience. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have an idea for our next class, please email me directly. You've been listening to Capital Class, a venture with the Strategist Podcast Network. Learn more at strategistgroup.com. I'm Adam Geary. Class is closed.